0: You're listening to the Art Problems Podcast, episode 28. I'm your host, Patty Johnson. This is the podcast where we talk about how to get more shows, grants, and residencies. And in this episode of Art Problems, we are going to talk about the theme of defining success. And I have asked Eric Lopresti to talk with me, an artist who is based in New York City. And I asked him here because I feel like he is exceptionally good at recognizing not just his success, but the success of others. Eric, welcome to the show.
1: Hi, Patty. Thanks for having me.
0: Thanks so much for coming. One of the things that I wanted to mention to everyone is that one of the reasons that I feel like I can say that you're so good at recognizing your success and that of others is because I shared a studio with you for three years and we were neighbors. So uh, we know each other quite well.
1: Indeed. And not one of those times did we have like a knockdown blowout fight where you cut up my canvases. Uh, So... (laughs) (laughs) Patty, it's it's such a pleasure, and and I also, um, given the theme of this uh, episode, you know, want to acknowledge your success with uh, workshop and just all the things that you're constantly doing. I'm always very impressed with your entrepreneurial spirit. Just a real pleasure to watch.
0: Oh well, thank you so much. Now, the first thing that I wanted to ask you and just get this out of the way because I think it's in my mind, it's almost like an elephant in the room, which is you work in the art world. You know how fucked up it is. How have you managed such an optimistic and positive disposition given the conditions of the industry?
1: You know, I've heard you say that. Other people have said that about me, that I'm such an optimist. I know it's a fucked up gift to to, to use your statement, <laughs> but it really is... Better than the alternative, which in my mind is no art world. (laughs) Okay. Okay. I know that's a low bar. Also, I'll I'll just get this elephant out of the way too, which is that I have a second career in tech. Therefore, I I guess I can represent a pretty interdisciplinary view of business. The art world is business and compared to the tech business. Yeah, it's arguably a lot weirder. But is it more brutal? I don't know. You know, it, all, all these endeavors are human and subject to people competing and being jerks to each other. So I guess in a way, I'm just glad to be here.
0: I mean, do you feel like the art world is really filled with people being jerks to each other?
1: Oh, of course. I mean, not all of them. I have very good friends in the art world, you included. But yeah, there's, there's, there's some jerky behavior out there. Stepping out of line here, don't you think so?
0: Is but I guess like I guess my question was how much of it you encountered because I have encountered some of it, but I wouldn't say that it's actually my the defining experience of the industry. And I think if it were, I probably would have chosen a different industry.
1: Absolutely. I mean, unfortunately, you know, the kind of bad behavior of a couple can really burn you out. Um, But my experience has been very positive. All the gallerists I worked with uh, have been incredibly supportive. And, you know, one thing that you can say about the art world is if you're in the art world, you very likely want to be in the art world. Yes. And and so you're, gonna, if you're getting people who are bringing their enthusiasm, their creativity and their everything to it. I think that makes us subject to a lot of feelings of frustration and disappointment when we don't see our dreams visualized the way we want them. That said, this is a community of enthusiasts and viewed that way like i said it's not always easy out there but i find the new york art scene amazing i think it's i think it's it's great it's full of the best people in the world
0: it's not really a career that you fall into like you know i remember my father talking about his career as an accountant as something that he kind of fell into it wasn't something he actively chose. I can't think of a single artist who's like, oh, I just started doing this one day. And look, I have a career. <laughs> <Yeah>.
1: <laughs> what do they say? If, if you can do anything else, if you can figure out anything else, do it because um, it's hard out there. And it is financially just from the start. It is financially unviable to bring your creativity out and expect to make a living in uh, contemporary New York. It's very, very hard. So you have to be in it for other reasons. And most of those reasons are your passion for what you wanna say and and, and the people you wanna be around.
0: So one of the things that I always felt like we kind of had in common is this interest in technology. Um, and you actually work in the field and I guess I would consider myself something of like a manager and producer of technology. I am not somebody who literally builds it. But I wondered, you have often talked about your work as being influenced by technology or your approach being influenced that way. And just for reference for everybody here, like the paintings that Eric makes are landscape Paintings often, not always, but and and they're impacted by your upbringing and your interest in um, nuclear weapons.
1: Yeah, you saved the, uh, the 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 critical subject for the last bit. There, um, <laughs> <but> <laughs> I think I should. Uh, to be fair, I'm just going to give a slight, a quick introduction. I'm a painter. I have made a couple of signature videos, but mainly I make oil paintings and watercolor and traditional medium. Their landscapes, as you say, I regard them as um, landscapes with sort of interventions in them. Lately, I've been doing a lot of work, uh, a series of work I called rocks and tapes. The landscape pair is the rocks, which are taken from photographs that I take out west. And then the tapes are these sort of trompe l'oeil interventions that appeared on top of the painting. Um, all of my work is about deserts, it's about the wide open expanse of the West, and therefore it's also about the militarization of the West, specifically nuclear weapons. I've come from a town that makes or made nuclear weapons. It's uh, part of that Hanford site, which was part of the Manhattan Project and recently was mentioned in the Oppenheimer movie. That's where the US made the plutonium for the Nagasaki bomb, and a lot of the fissile material for the entire U.S. nuclear arsenal. It's a very strange place to be from. And as an artist, it's provided me a way to think about technology in relationship to my goals. We are in a technology-infused world. I, I think people would not disagree if I said we're in a period of massive disruption due to technology. I think nuclear weapons is kind of the err story like the uber-narrative of technology. And if you understand that story, it gives you insights on things like AI and climate change and oil and these other technologies. Let me go back to this episode is about success, right? Yes. And one of the challenges I grew up with was that I had a left brain and a right brain. My uh, mom was an art school dropout. My dad, the scientist for the New York federal government, between the two, I had these equal parts of interest in science and technology and in art. So one of my long-term goals for success in my life is to find a way to harmonize or resolve or fuse those pieces. At this point, I think I need to also say that when I'm not in the studio, I have a position in tech. I'm a global director of user experience for Xylem, which is a global publicly traded water infrastructure firm. A lot of big words to me that I work for a very large company that makes pumps and meters and defilter, uh, filtration systems and these sort of massive infrastructure tech that goes into global water supply in China, in North America, in Africa. And my job is to direct a team of 16 designers who are working on the software. Now, that's a giant job, but it doesn't really fill my creative uh, sort of uh, direction. That said, I love that job because I learn how things work. And that yeah. came back into my art. So when you ask me, uh, what's the impact of technology on my work? You, you're right. It's infused. I intentionally don't make paintings of laptops or digital tech or a lot of media. I view the technology as part of the landscape. And so it's infused in the landscape. You know, I choose my landscapes to talk about the, you know, the way that uh, technology has changed them. Often Western landscapes are highly modified by human activity. That's not something you might see at a glance, but over time, as you learn about my work or maybe you learn about the painting that you have on the wall, I think it adds a layer of connection to the real. And the real is we're in this contemporary era, call it the Anthropocene, whatever you want to call it, where everything is about the tech and we humans are navigating it and it comes with its joys like being able to have this video conference with you, (laughs) Uh, but it also comes with really deep uh, danger and responsibility. And a lot of my work focuses on that.
0: I think it's really powerful that you have defined success here anyway, not by like, and my definition of success is I want like to be acquired by these places and I want these accolades or whatever. Not that you don't want these things, I assume you do, but that your interest is the success of fusing these two different worlds. And to me, the thing I really like about that is it's not dependent on external validation.
1: I love what you're saying, and I hope to live up to that, uh, that goal because, because uh, um, as we'll talk about, I think more, external validation is fleeting. If one can find that metal in yourself, that center, where you're like oh, this is what i'm about that's the guidance through turbulent career and by the way career in tech can be every bit as turbulent as a career in art i absolutely aspire towards that do i succeed you know wait a couple of days and i'll be in the uh, pit of despair with everyone else you know what i mean like it, it, this this uh, veneer of optimism uh i think it's partly that i try to project on the world what i want <laughs> it's not always how i feel i do hope to fuse those things And one more thing, which is that I'm into my careers, right? I'm living through my life. And at some point I started asking myself, like, what do I have here? What do I have to offer? Who are the artists that I'm comparing myself to? And am I like them? And I think the answer is a lot of times, no, because I have these two very different sides of myself that I've developed very strongly. And I regard myself as kind of like a half and half interdisciplinary person that's not incredibly common. There are definitely people who do it and, you know, there are people who have three careers. But I think that interdisciplinary nature is part of what I bring to the table because it gives me a different point of view on being, let's say, a painter. Being, as you said, the ultimate painter's painter, you know, that's probably for another artist. (laughs) My goal is to be, you know, what I am, whether this kind of two-sided tech and art, uh, a person who can really put forth, hopefully, unique point of view.
0: Right. Now, I think one thing that I'm sort of navigating here and will like you'll have to bear with me as I talk it yeah, talk yeah. it through is that I think like, you know, there's one kind of defining success, right? This, These are the parameters of your art and like what you want to achieve. But that is not necessarily divorced from, hey, I'd like people to see this work, right? Like yeah. I'm doing this work. I'm not doing it just for my own validation. Like I think I have something to add to the conversation. And this is a conversation that I want to have. I have something, conversation I want to create, And so I'm wondering, I think this was a while ago that we were talking about this, maybe a year and a half, two years ago, but I I feel like at one point you said that you made a shift in your art, like in the way that you approached your art career. To me, it sort of sounded like the shift was, I'm going to professionalize. I'm going to get my artist statement together. I'm going to get these things together. And you said that when you did that, you found that things shifted for you in terms of opportunities. And so I wondered if you could talk about that a little bit with people, because to me, that feels very profound.
1: I was having a struggle of getting my work shown and recognized. I recognized in myself, I knew that was part of being an artist, that yes, part of being the artist is being in the studio and making things, but I felt a very strong strongly that like it's partly it's interacting with my community and what do you have to offer as an artist? What do you bring? You lead with your work. If you want to lead with your personality, you should become a talk show host. Um, If you want to, (laughs) you know, if you want to lead with your intellectual acumen, you should become an academic. But as an artist, we lead with the work. And for me, the work's paintings, that comes from my own internal process. That's the part that I wanted to, you know, have, have seen and frankly, find platforms to show the shift you're talking about. I basically looked at it from the other point of view of someone who was a consumer of my work or a viewer of my work from a collector, from a, you know, enthusiast, from a gallerist, from an institution, what do they see? What do they see in Eric Lopresti? Why would they want me? (laughs) That was the shift. It was painful. It's still painful. Um, You know, people don't always see in me what what I want them to see, but I felt like at very least I can make a better case for myself. So I started thinking about beyond the resumes and the websites and stuff like that, what is the proposition I'm bringing to the table here as an artist, as a landscape painter, as someone who has a background in tech but is interested in aesthetics and very deeply involved in color, these big issues what does eric Presti have to offer
0: so basically what you're saying is that you took control of your story or like the the things that you wanted to communicate and you became more of an active participant in that and prior were you not doing that like what i just want to get to the like core shift mm-hmm. here
1: well prior i wasn't really aware of how people were view- viewing me and when I was, I was confused by it. The confusion stems from a place we all know, which is the myth of an artist. How do you become an artist? Well, you know, if you ever heard the, the stories about Pablo Picasso, you know, he was an artist when he was like a little kid. And he was so good that his uh, his father, who was an artist, says, oh, Pablo, you, these Cardboard cutouts you're making is so amazing. I put down my brushes. I'm never going to paint again. You are the master, and Pablo Picasso was born. And guess what? The world gets this genius, and it's complete crap. It's all wrong. Every part of that is wrong. I'm not Pablo Picasso. You know, I'm not that genius, and I'm never going to be. So what do I got? Well, I think I have some good ideas, and if I could put them together in a way, a, a show or presentation that viewers are going to, uh, you know, see some value in, if they're going to see all oh, that, that's an interesting narrative across there. That's an interesting color store. That's just an interesting way to look at things. Then yeah, I, I'm doing my job. What I'm again trying to get away from this idea of a lone, solitary genius. I, I'm just not that. <laughs> and there, well, I think nobody I, is, applied. right? Yeah, of course not. Of course not. Well, maybe, maybe. actually, I I think I've met a couple where I'm like, yeah, that's a genius. But, you know, those geniuses require someone to curate them in. You know, there are famous examples of artists who, uh, Van Gogh, who, you know, genius, but it required his brother-in-law and sister-in-law, I think, you know, brought him to fame. Well, you need that editor in there. You need someone to tell that story, to make that context, to provide that platform. I, I try to provide some of that myself.
0: So are you saying that in order to uh, kind of build a a narrative and build a story and and build a career, you need collaborators?
1: Oh, absolutely, yes. Look, you can make the paintings by yourself. That's one of the glories of being an artist. You can go in your studio, you don't have to depend on anybody. And sometimes that's a real, real benefit. That said, if you wanna make an impact, if you wanna have an international show, if you wanna show it to a lot of people, you're going to need to make make relationships just like any business.
0: Now, can I ask this? Because one of the things that I've felt that you are very good at, that I think a lot of people struggle with is you just ask for what you need. And it seems like it never occurs to you that somebody might be like, not put out exactly, but like a lot of the artists that I talk to are like worried that there'll be a bother or a pain or anything like that. And you don't have that, you know, that hesitation.
1: What I try to do is think through from the other person's point of view, what is this person asking for? And, you know, at some point, we're gonna talk about galleries and so forth, but a common thought from a young artist, which I was once, (laughs) I'd like to show at your gallery, can you give me a show? I'd like to have this, this grant, can you give me the grant? I'd like to have this residency, can you give me the residency? Okay, let's look at it from the point of view of the gallerist. Let's look at it from the point of view of the institution. Let's look at it from the point of view of the grant um, giver. What do you got? Show me what you got. And let me. And by the way, you're in line with 150, 300 people who are asking me the same question. I don't mean being, mind being asked the question, but give me a reason to give it to you. And so that's where I think this perspective shift comes into play, which is like, what do I got that say many of my friends who are artists and some of them much much more sophisticated in it and, and, you know, skilled artists than me, what do I got? That's different. And how does that fit into the mission of the person I'm asking?
0: So tell me you showed at what well, initially at mm-hmm. burning and water, which became, I've been pronouncing the name of the gallery wrong for like years now it's Malin. Is that the case?
1: Correct? Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah. So I want to know, like with that conversation, How did that go? Did you, did you say, hey, do you want to give me a show? Do you want to represent me? Like what was, do you remember what the conversation was like?
1: Well, the context is I had been showing in New York for about a decade prior to that. Sure. And um, I had a show in Williamsburg. I had um, also been generating institutional shows at universities at pretty regular clips. I think that it's possible as an artist to make things happen for yourself if you're reasonable about your expectations. And, mm-hmm. you know, it takes time to get put together a show. You can show at a local, you know, at a college or a university. It's just going to take time to get a- on the schedule and you're going to do a lot of patience and a lot of lead work. That's part of the job. Burning in Water was started by Barry Malin, uh, I think about eight years ago. And through a friend just kind of called me out of the blue and said, hey, can you talk about your work? And then said, hey, how do you want to you show there? So they, he found me. I think there's two strategies you can take for these sort of things. I call one the hunting strategy, second one the trapping. Hunting is when you go after something. I want to show at a gallery and I'm going to try to get in there. You may or may not be able to do it, but it's worth thinking, like, I want to target that gallery. I'm this, I want to be at their openings or so forth, make friends with their artists, whatever you need to do to, to try to smooth your way in. It doesn't really work very often, but sometimes it does. The other thing is make yourself attractive. Uh, That's the trapping strategy. So, you know, I had shown that I had a sales record. I had shown that I had a record of critical reviews and I was generating a body of work that was unique. I was very surprised and happy that Barry asked me to show, but I wasn't surprised overall because when you build a case for yourself, people are looking for that. People are looking for strong artists. And if you can... Put that package together, then you have something to offer, and you shouldn't be surprised when they come after you.
0: Now, see, this is what I, I love that analogy the hunting and uh, trapping analogy, because one of the things that I see as being a, an issue is that oftentimes opportunities can seem random, right? So it doesn't feel like if you're hunting, Mm-hmm. there's a very uh, obvious like oh I went out to get this thing and then I got it if you're mm-hmm. but giving a name like trapping mm-hmm. to hey this opportunity came to me but I did all these things so that I mm-hmm. could get that opportunity I think mm-hmm. it returns the agency to the artist
1: it does you have to add in the element of time mm. this doesn't happen overnight I, I like I've mentioned, I probably underestimated. I think I was showing in New York longer than 10 years before then. But before that, I'd also been spending a lot of time in my professional practice and so forth. These things take time and effort and skill. You need to learn how to put yourself out there in a way that makes sense. That's where workshop comes into play. You're very good about saying, okay, this is a good way to present yourself. This is a place where you could improve. As an artist, you're not born innately with an understanding of exactly how to present yourself in the perfect way. Yeah. It, it pays to have people, and I'm all for hiring people, coaches, advisors, any any way you can get help, trade with friends, ask your neighbor, get their perspective on what you're doing and use that to improve your professional practice. Even if you are born a Picasso or a genius, uh, you know, you're still not going to know exactly how to navigate the treacherous art world. So get help, form allies. So-
0: One of the things I wanted to talk to you about, like this sort of brings up a a question that I had because I think the conditions of visibility have changed a lot in the art world. And I feel like everybody is experiencing this, but you had an experience recently where you were showing in Japan, you had a lot of institutional support, but it was during the pandemic And you felt like you didn't have the visibility from the US that you might like. And I wondered if you could talk about that a little bit, because I did feel like that kind of, that falls under the umbrella of success too, right? Like, because we talked earlier about having the framework and the conditions of the work itself being part of the success. And then it's also the success of being able to share it.
1: Yep. I'd like to tell this story um, from beginning to end, if you'll give me a second, because I think it's a good example. I'm incredibly proud of the way it turned out. I'm referring to a show in Japan in 2022 called Center Surround with Koki Arts Gallery in Tokyo. The way that show happened is kind of a story about five years, but I think also might provide a little insight about how I go about trying to get my own version of success and where I fail and where things don't work out. But okay, five years ago, I made a video piece that came out of an inspiration. I was wondering how to talk about nuclear weapons. You mentioned that's one of my themes. It's a very dark topic and involves a number that I was curious about. How many nuclear weapons had been exploded in history? I found the number was like 2,472. It's a weird number because it's like big, but maybe it's not big enough, but the, the scale of it, Broke my brain, so I thought I really wanted to hmm. humanize it. I didn't want to see it as a statistic. I wanted to feel what what does it mean to explode close to two thousand atomic bombs? It's one of these things could destroy a city level of apocalypse. Uh, escapes my it just blew my mind. So I decided I would use video. <laughs> I never made a video before. I also drew from my experience in martial arts. So I, I have third years in Aikido. It's a Japanese martial art. And for some reason, I had this inspiration that I should take aikido breakfalls to represent each one of the um, nuclear explosions. A break So fall a breakfall yeah <laughs> what is it? I, I, when you get thrown onto the ground violently and you hear a large slap, that's a breakfall. Okay and it's, it's something you're trained to do in many martial arts and in aikido specifically you take it on a mat. And it's often, um, the throw is sort of stylized, but the fall is real. So it's very physical. 2,472 break falls. That is a lot of falls. And I decided I would get together a team of my martial arts compatriots, not necessarily artists, um, but very generous volunteers to take those 2,000 falls. And And I did a video of us performing basically a freestyle Rondori where we by turns took all these falls. It took three hours. It's an excruciatingly long, very physical video, which you can feel because everyone is sweating like crazy and, and it's difficult. So I made this video, um, it's two channels. On one channel is the Aikido video and the second channel is the name and date of every nuclear weapon exploded in history. And it's on a color field and where the color changes for cheese bombs. So it's a little bit of a, a staccato. Every seven seconds you hear the break fall. And every seven seconds you hear like another fall seven on average very in- unique piece no ideas where to show it certainly it wasn't something you're gonna just like put on your kitchen wall so what I-, I wasn't really sure what to do about it but it started getting attention it was shown at um new mexico state university it was shown at friedman gallery part as part of their new year festival and then uh, i was approached by the carnegie uh, corporation of new york about including it into a conference here and then taking it internationally. And they gave me a grant and they said, here's X amount of money. Take it internationally. This is a very interesting way to look at this, this global challenge. And where do you want to go? And I said, it's about nuclear weapons. There's, there's really only one place to go. It's got to go to Japan at which point phone got very quiet (laughs) because Japan is a very different culture and they have a very different view on nuclear weapons. I'm an American, I was literally grew up in a town that made the stuff that exploded over Japanese cities in 1945. So I felt like I had something to say. I felt like something to offer as an artist bringing this topic from an American point of view. And really what I had to offer was my vulnerability to show this work, but. Allow or enable a conversation. Um, that was my hope, but I faced a really big challenge, which is like, what gallery is he going to show this stuff? Like, who is willing to take this risk? And I went through basically a year of looking for a venue. A lot of doors shut in my face. Um, a lot of New York institutions that would normally support, you know, artists going to Japan were very direct that they were not interested in this work. And then one day, I got a, an email from Koki Ishibashi, who, uh, through a friend, uh, Patton Hendel, who I want to call out and thank for connecting us. He was interested in showing this work and bring it to his Tokyo gallery. And I asked him, wait, why? Because I've got a lot of no's. Why are you interested in it? And he said, well, because we don't talk about this in this way in Japan. And as an American, you'd be bringing something interesting to in the conversation that I just haven't seen here. And that's when it clicked with me which is that the very reason I was being rejected most of the time was the very reason that Koki was interested in me. So I was looking for that needle in a haystack and I had to go through all those rejections to find the one place where it was going to be a fit. Mm. Um, So lesson number one is sometimes, you know, like these rejections are gifts. They're like, they're telling you where not to go. Yes. (laughs) I don't want to make this too long, but I will say that that was in fall of 2019. So, when we scheduled the show <laughs> it was originally scheduled for august of 2020 but of course COVID hit and so then we had a, a, a logistical problem of like well now we can't travel so we have to delay the show one year we had to delay the show a second year is the grant even valid can we make this stuff happen i ended up uh doing it last fall august 2022 japan was still closed to visitors so there's a COVID restrictions. I had to travel under a, a business visa, which was its whole you can picture the amount of logistics that went into this sort of thing. Also, I managed to get COVID directly before the trip. <laughs> so which,
0: <laughs> which is just crazy to me. And also it is a little bit crazy to me to think that it was only last year that we were mm-hmm. just coming out of the pandemic. Somehow it feels like very long ago.
1: Yeah. This was a profound experience for me. I was supposed to be in Japan for two weeks. I only managed to make it one week because I had COVID before I kept delaying my flights. We were supposed to do it in 2020. I ended up in 2022. I didn't, there's so many things that, that were like obstacles against this, but when it happened, I felt it was pure magic. And this is what was magic. I arrived in Tokyo close to midnight. Uh, It's the heat of August. There's no tourists. Everyone's like, how the hell did you get here? (laughs) 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 Um, And I immediately have to install the the work onto uh, these Chinese protectors, which are being intransigent and impossible to work with. But when the show happened, it was the Japanese art world seeing this work that they would never have seen otherwise and that they're gonna have their perspective on. You know, famously a very polite and uh, considerate people. the moment they walk outside that gallery door, they're gonna have a conversation that might be outside of my ears, but maybe something important to them. As part of the exhibition, Koki interviewed me in front of an audience. Everyone was wearing masks for us, uh, Koki and myself. And the engagement from the audience, you know, the questions they asked told me they were getting something out of this they hadn't seen before. Did they like it? Sometimes. Did they not like it? Quite possibly. But it was bringing something to them that they wouldn't have seen otherwise. And that's my role as an artist. My role is to be there and to be an object in front of people that they can think about. This will change my mind. In this case, thinking about the way nuclear weapons affects not just the history of Japan or the history of the U.S., but our contemporary lives under apocalyptic threat. How do you live your life under this sort of umbrella of the mushroom cloud? Mm -hmm. And how do you continue given that that's likely to continue? So the comments I got from the live audience, the questions I got, I treasure. Um, There were experiences there, pretty much everyone there had family who was involved in World War II and many of them had experiences from Nagasaki or Hiroshima. And these were just profound things for me to receive as an artist that goes into my practice. I offer this just as an example of how five years of toil and effort and confusion can sometimes make lightning in a bottle. Um, And I just feel very proud and lucky to have been part of that moment.
0: Right. I mean, I think one of the things that we have discussed sort of off podcast though, was that I think you felt kind of frustrated that you weren't able to get, you know, the, the visibility that you wanted from the U S audience. And I think like one question Hmm. I guess I I'd have for you about that is like, if you think about the U S audience versus the Japanese audience, like you knew immediately that the Japanese audience was though, like you would be bringing something they didn't already have. Right. Mm -hmm. And can you say the same about the U S audience? Like, I guess my question is Mm. like, was the U S audience ever really your audience to begin with?
1: I think it was, I was frustrated because I couldn't get press. And we, we talked a little bit offline. I could not get American press to, to pay attention to this seminal show. Like this is like a show of a lifetime for me. Why not? Well, actually, it's a structural issue. There are no U.S. art magazines that have reporters in Japan anymore. Yes. Like, and, and if the show not going to be in a city that the institution is interested in, why are they going to cover it? So it, it kind of fall, fell into this abyss where it was like, out of town, and therefore not going to you know not worthy of coverage. I think that's a an issue that many artists come up against, and I'm hardly the first. Yes, I was frustrated. To be fair, in my in my defense, I have shown this four times now in the U.S. and have gotten press in New Mexico and and the New Year Festival got a bunch of press at Friedman Gallery. So I do think the audience here. We can shift this for a second. Oppenheimer came out whatever three weeks ago, and a lot of people are understanding this subject matter from the viewpoint of Christopher Nolan's three-hour historical drama. Um, I think that's an important movie to have on the books. I think it's an important movie to watch. I don't agree completely with everything Christopher Nolan uh, says, but I think it's important that people understand this issue. And I'll explain why I'm interested in it. because. As I said before, this is the story of technological disruption. And the same thing that could be said about nuclear weapons could be said about a lot of different things. The internet, social media. These stories are affecting us. So my artwork has to do with how do you how do you manage yourself through that tumble, through that chaos, through those feelings of being overwhelmed and the disruption. That's what I'm interested in.
0: I think maybe just to bring it back to success. One of the things that I like about the way that you have approached answering all these questions is that in and in a previous episode we had somebody named Philip Niemeyer talk about Mm. identifying a lodestar, a thing that for you is like a guiding principle. And throughout this interview, even when challenged, you have always brought things back to your particular viewpoint, the things that your kind of negotiation of the technology and art and the contradictions within them. And I like that because I feel like that is, it's just a very honest approach.
1: Hmm. As an artist, look, there's an argument that we we're kind of, uh, we're kind of under uh, resourced. You know, we don't bring a lot of world-changing ability. We, we, do, we can't build a bridge. <laughs> uh, we can't build a water filtration station. Uh, we can't fix a pipe. What we bring is our point of view. And it's going to be on an object, be it a painting or a sculpture or an NFT or, or a performance, you know, something happening in the world. But it's going to be about... Our viewers, and we are a viewer ourselves. What do we bring? We bring a point of view, we bring a way of looking at the world.
0: I have a lot of interest and engagement in talking to people and artists. These things make a difference. And so, for people who are trying to figure out your path, part of it, part of the job is identifying, I think, what you're not so good at. And part of it is identifying what you are good at. And what separates you from other people? Like, What is the perspective? And like, where is that perspective needed? And I feel like you have done an exceptional job at that. And the reason I wanted to have you on the podcast was because I felt like you also would have a way of sort of looking at things that might be unique and valuable to people. So I wanna thank you, Eric, for coming on the podcast. Mm.
1: Well, thank you, Patty.
0: Thank you for listening. If you like the show, please leave a review and share it with a friend. It really helps get that valuable information out to more artists just like you. You can find all of the names and the links that we reference in this conversation at podcast.